Hey everybody, welcome to the Pop Anime Comics Lounge where I have with me Linda Ballantyne, who is the voice of Sailor Moon, Katori Sakiyami from Airmaster, Wasp from Avengers United They Stand, Wicked from Cyber Chase, as well as Tulip from Toot and Huddle, and recently Queen Myla from Mia and Me. So thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. So I'm very curious, what initially got you involved in voice acting? Well, you know, I went to theater school. I always loved acting. Acting is something when you want to do it, you don't really have a choice because it sort of takes over your life. And I was definitely an actor right from the very beginning. When it was time to go to university, I really wanted to pursue the acting. So I went to Ryerson Theater School and at theater school, they have a whole bunch of different courses that you have to take. There's improv courses, there's stage technique, there's this, there's that. But one of them was microphone technique. And as soon as I got in front of the microphone, as soon as I put those headphones on, I went this is what I want to do. I loved it. I just knew how to do it right away. I could feel it. I was good at just letting myself go and just do whatever the hell my voice wanted to do. And I had fun. And then after I graduated from theater school, I already had an agent. And I went to my agent and I said, you know, I think I'd really like to do voice. And they said, okay, well, you got to get a demo together. And I said, got one. Did it in theater school. And they went, oh, okay. We'll listen to it. And they said, okay, what we'll do is we'll send you out. And if you get work, then we'll send you out more. But we'll just try one audition and see how you do. So I went to my one audition and I got the part and so right away they went oh you're gonna work and I was like okay good I was like a little puppy you know okay okay what's next let's keep, keep doing this keep doing this and so I just lucked out and I just kept working and I haven't looked back and what was your first role that you went on and you got it my first role was a butter commercial and it was just this silly little commercial about butter and I was this sort of granola like I like butter best on a mountaintop and I was sort of talking like oh my god very exciting eh? a butter commercial and so going from a butter commercial how did you read really start to get involved in being on cartoons and into anime type shows? Well, again, I kept having to bug my agent and say, I'd really like to do animation. They said, yeah, 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 okay, well, we'll send you out to something eventually. But I had to keep prodding and poking and prodding and poking, going, I really want to go out for some animation. And finally, they sent me. And I can't even remember if I got the first one. I don't even remember what the first one I auditioned for, but it might have been for Wasp and the Avengers. I think it may well have been the Avengers was my first audition, and I got that one. And let's talk about the Avengers. You're coming into this American product as a Canadian. What was that experience like for you? I didn't even think of it as Canadian and American. For me, my older brother is a huge comic book fan. So when I got this, I didn't even really know what the Avengers was. I was like, some cartoon that I'm going to be doing. Oh, this is cool. And so I called my brother and said, hey, I got a part in a cartoon. He was like, oh yeah, which one? I said, the Avengers. And he went, what? The Avengers? What part? And I said, Wasp. Janet Van Dyne? You are Janet Van Dyne? You're Wasp in the Avengers? This is big. This is very big. But as it turned out, they actually interviewed me in the comic book. And there was a whole article of me in this comic book, which, of course, my brother bought because he was just like, oh, my God, you're in a comic book. Ah, He was really freaking out in a big way. So that was more the excitement. But otherwise, I really didn't think of it as Canadian or American or anything like that. I don't tend to usually because it all kind of melds into one with us, North America, except when I say out and about. And now Wasp is very interesting. There's a lot of character development goes into her due to the comic books, as well as she's been in a lot of cartoons. How did you go about getting into her character? You know what? Because it was my very first one, I didn't go into getting into her character the way I should have. Because if I was doing it now, I would have done a lot more research and really read up on who she was. But at the time, to be fair to me, the internet was not what it is today. It really wasn't around. So 
I couldn't just go online and go, okay, let's look up Wasp in the Avengers. Let's see what she's all about. I would go online, let's immerse yourself and figure out everything you can about this character. Part of the joy in doing it old school and not knowing was I had the freedom to be able to do whatever I wanted, whatever I thought was right. And that probably helped me a lot in it. And you know, the directors really push you wherever they want you to go as well. And now we're going to talk about some anime, but this was a cartoon. And how do cartoons typically record versus an anime? For us in Canada, we usually do more original animation as opposed to the dubbing. So with original animation, and that would be with the Avengers, they recorded your voice first, and then they draw the pictures. So you have a lot more freedom. You're the one that's starting the whole process. You are saying whatever you want. Obviously, you're sticking to a script, but you can go off script and really develop the character in different ways. You can give them certain vocal things that they keep saying over and over. Or you can really make it your own. But with anime, the lip flaps are already there. So you've got to make sure that you're getting your voice in as that mouth is flapping back and forth. And it's a lot harder to do for sure. But you get used to that too. And it all ends up being kind of like karaoke. Read along to the bouncing ball kind of thing. And now before we get too far into some of your rules, I'm very curious because there's the North American dubbing market. But what does the Canadian dubbing as well as voiceover market look like? It's not what it used to be, for sure, because places like Funimation, that's all in the States, and we can't work down there. We're two different unions. We've got ACTRA up here. You've got SAG-AFTRA down there. And I could join SAG-AFTRA if I wanted to, but I would still do it here in Canada because I don't have my green card, and I don't really want to go down. I like where I am. My family's here and stuff, so I want to stay here. So I would say the dubbing, there's a heck of a lot more in the States right now than there is in Canada. There used to be a lot here. It is what it is. And now we're going to kind of go back to when dubbing was a little bit more popular in Canada with probably what everybody wants to talk about, which is Sailor Moon. So you came into Sailor Moon, and I'm not sure which number Sailor Moon you were, but you took over for Terry Hawks. That's right. What was the story behind this? Well, that was the terrifying thing. So I was technically the third Sailor Moon. There was Tracy Moore, who did about eight episodes, and then Terry took over. And Terry and Tracy sound a lot alike. They are very, very, very similar. So that was easy. They've got the same kind of vocal sound. They've sort of got a slight nasalness to the way they do their characters, and that's great. And then it was my turn. And so I got an audition for Sailor Moon, and they were auditioning for all the different characters. And I thought, I've heard this character. My nieces listened to it. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. When I hear it, I can mimic it. It's not hard. So I went into this audition and that particular day, I was so sick. I was so, so ill. Just out of nowhere got this terrible head cold. My head was so full of snot, quite frankly. I could barely even breathe. I'm sitting there in this waiting room getting sicker and sicker going, God, oh God, I'm going, I'm losing my voice. What am I going to do? Because they were auditioning for Sailor Mars, Sailor Venus, Sailor Moon, a couple of other ones as well. And so I decided I wouldn't talk to anybody in the waiting room as I waited. And everybody, I'm sure, was sitting there going, boy, Ballantine's really evil today. Why isn't she talking to anybody? But I just wanted to save my voice. And when I went in there, because of this cold, I had this nasal sound to me, and it was so easy to sound exactly like Terry. And as soon as I did it, they went, oh my God, this is exactly what we want. This is great. And I got the part, and it was awesome. I was like, yes, I got this part. This is awesome. And then the penny dropped because I didn't have a cold anymore. 
And now I suddenly had to go in to this studio and my nose wasn't all full of snot or anything. So I didn't have that same sound. So I had to figure out how to do this sound without plugging my nose. At one point, I actually thought of shoving Kleenex up my nose. I thought, there's no way I'm going to record an entire series with Kleenex shoved up my nose. It really took a while and they kept getting me to scream higher and higher and louder and louder. And I just hated doing it the way they wanted me to do it. They kept getting me to do all this stuff and I was going oh god I hate this character so it took me quite a few episodes to just say no I'm not Terry I'm not Tracy I'm Linda and I start making this character what I want this character to be and then it started being what I wanted it to be and it was great so how did you go about finding your version of Sailor Moon versus what came before you and how much influence did directors have and how much influence did Terry have on you really shifting it into your own character they would go younger go younger sound younger go higher higher, higher. They kept saying that. And for me, that wasn't the answer. So I was doing what they wanted me to, but it just wasn't the answer. It was just a lot of screaming. And I just hated that. So I got to a point where I was so frustrated with this character. I couldn't stand the character to begin with. I hated this character. And I would literally come home every day crying, saying, I hate this character. All they're doing is getting me to scream. And I hate this. What kind of stupid character is this? And my husband would say, you have to make this your own. And I'd say, no, you don't understand. You don't know what you're talking talking about they want Terry and he's like yeah well they're not getting Terry they're getting you so you have to make this your own every day I would come home literally crying saying the same thing and every day my husband would say you have to make this your own and so one day on the way to work I could feel everything tensing up inside me my shoulders were up around my ears and then I went okay Linda if you were the first person to do this character what would you do and I was literally talking to myself out loud in the car I looked like an absolute idiot so I was talking to myself and I said well if I was going to start this all all from the beginning, the first thing I would do is look at this character and go, what is she? She's a teenage girl. She's a big goofball. Because that's what teenage girls are. They're goofballs, especially this one. And the thing about teenage girls are they've got two sides to them. One side, they want to be this young kid. They're still goofy. That's all they've ever known in their life. And they want to have fun and play. And on the other side, they're starting to become women. And they want to be adults. They want to be taken seriously. And so they've got this push-me-pull-me thing going on in their own heads. And I went, that's what I would want this character to be. I would want her to have that stupid goofiness where she's falling over herself all the time, but she's also trying to take herself seriously. And there's so much humor in all of that. So that day I went, I'm doing that today. And I went into the studio then and everything changed. The voice started to change. The attitude of her started to change. And I was like, this is what I'm talking about. And the directors didn't try to stop me, nothing. And I didn't say to them, I'm changing everything. If I had, they would have said, no, you're not. But because they didn't know that this was my ulterior motive, I just went ahead and did it myself. And and after that, the character really started to develop how I wanted it to. And I was able to go home that night. And I was like, I'm a happy girl today. But my husband was like, I thought you were recording Sailor Moon today. It was so good. I finally figured out what I was doing wrong. He'll say, yeah, what was that? And I said, I just had to make it my own. My husband went, yeah, that's a good idea, honey. It's a really good idea. That poor man, he puts up with a lot for me, I'll tell you. And speaking about that, I think that really hits season three and season four on the head is we get this transition of Sailor Moon and Serena, who's her normalness side of it all, for lack of a better word, we really start to see this transition of her going from being this young leader to transitioning into a woman and really understanding her role as a Sailor Scout. How did you get into her character and into her mentality to really 
bring out her voice to convey what her job is. Well, I just had to go along with what the storyline was and just let it all advance as she advanced. And, you know, we didn't get the scripts ahead of time at all. So everything that we had, we were doing right off the cuff. And I was literally seeing it for the first time as I was voicing it. So I didn't know how it was all going to progress. I was sort of watching the show just like you guys would watch. So only I also had to put the voice in at the same time. So it was very odd. And the fact that they didn't give us the scripts ahead of time, I still sort of shake my head and go, wow. So I just had to go along with how the storyline was going and let her develop like that. And a few questions ago, we spoke about cartoons. How does anime differ from cartoons besides just dubbing, just even within the booth and who or who you don't record with? Usually when we're doing dubbing, we just go in by ourselves. A lot of times, even just regular animation, we'll go in all by ourselves and all we're doing is our own lines. Every now and then you get to go in with somebody else. But for the most part, I was always by myself. But there's something so special about anime, especially Sailor Moon. We find a lot of our fans, a great number who are autistic. And there's something about the actual style of the cartoon, the show itself, that appeals to them. And I think it's because there are so many rules about it that they can follow more easily. And I think that they can also follow the emotions more easily. Because when the eyes get really super big, or when they're crying and their tears are just pouring out like a water fountain out of their eyes, I think that it's a lot easier for them to follow this stuff. Or they just get it. And they love it. The autistic fans that we have are the best fans because their hearts are just so open and they love it so much. And building upon that, given that you took over the role and really the show was pretty progressing slightly into a more mature medium. How did fans react to you taking over at anime cons? The internet was still blossoming, so I don't know if there were forms or anything, but overall, what was the fan reaction? Oh, I think to begin with, it was horror. I think people were going, she's terrible. This is not who we want. But luckily, like we said, the internet was not what it is now. Because if it had been, I probably would have killed myself. But I think then a lot of people also grew into it. And they let me because they loved the show so much. So it was like, okay, I'm going to give her a little bit more of a chance. And it's funny, the very first convention that I ever went to, I was terrified to go because I honestly thought they'd be throwing rotten fruit at me going, oh my God, I hate you. You suck, woman. And I was pleasant surprised that they didn't feel like that. There are some people that will come over going, I hated that third actress so much. I'm like, I was her. That was me. But then there's some other people that come over going, oh my God, I have to tell you, you're my favorite of the three and this is why. And I'm like, oh my God, I love you so much. For me, Terry is the voice of Sailor Moon. That's the one that I listen to and I go, that's what Sailor Moon sounds like. But I'm starting to own my part in it as well. And now you were on seasons three and four of Sailor Moon, really the back half of it. Do you have a favorite moment that you were a part of? I love the endings of the series because they were always so serious, those bits. And I love being a goofball. I love all the humor and all that kind of stuff. But it was really interesting to go to watch how it all progressed. So I loved the storyline, the way it progressed like that. But I also loved when Serena was drunk on juice. That was fun and hung over afterwards. I enjoyed that. I always loved when she would get herself in the stupidest situations, like when she's making out with Darian at one point and she was either chewing gum or she had sticky toffee or something like this. And then their teeth got locked together and they're like and so i love that kind of insanity of the show i love doing little bits like that because it was fun and now as much as i would love to continue to talk about sailor moon i think there's so much more to cover in your career which i want to follow up with is air master as katori sakayami how did this role come about 
Again, it's all auditioning. Pretty much most of the parts I get. Sometimes they cast you in what they call paper casting. And they'll just say, we know that she can do this role. We'll give it to her. But for that one, yeah, I definitely auditioned for it. Just like most of the other parts I go for. Now, Sakayama is very interesting as she has a one-sided rivalry with Maki, the main character. And she's loud and overdramatic and is deaf in one ear. So it was typecasting then. So given that character has all these traits how does that affect you getting into that character and how did you transition from coming from sailor moon into this character you know what i honestly don't even remember i'd actually have to listen to the character again and go oh yeah i forgot about that every now and then someone will bring me something to sign at a convention and it'll be one of my old characters i'm like who is this again i can't even remember now oh my gosh but generally i would say when they've got really great descriptions of the characters that's where i start if they've got a picture awesome that's even better you get to see what the character looks like and you just go what do i want this character to sound like and you try to keep it away from ones that you've already done as much as you can you want to make each one as individual as possible but I'm still one person with a voice so it just depends on what I happen to do with the voice at that time. And when you typically go out on auditions, do you sometimes audition generally and then they figure out on the studio end what character that you'd be assigned to or do you go sometimes specifically and you actually get to see a picture of the character that you're auditioning for? Usually it's pretty specific. Usually they'll say okay Linda you're going to be auditioning for the part of such and such in this one but often what you'll do is you'll also go in and they'll say, okay, you're going to be auditioning for this, but there's some other characters. So look at all the different sides that are in front of you. And the sides are just a small version of a script, maybe two pages that you're going to be reading for the audition. And you'll look at all the different characters and you go, okay, let's see. And they'll say, pick three characters. So I'll go, oh, I could be this one. Oh, a little boy, I could do this one. Oh, how about this old woman? I'll do that one as well. And I usually try to pick ones that are very, very different because say there's three girls in the thing. There's a chance that I might not be right for this one girl, but they're going to hear me read for and go you know what she's not right for that girl but she'd be perfect for that girl so I'm like okay I've sort of covered the girl parts what else is there oh look an older woman or this or that I try to give myself the biggest variety that I possibly can when I choose the sides and now to go into some cartoons a little bit one of the cartoons that you've been on and off with is cyber chase as wicked my favorite how'd you come into this role again I auditioned for it it was a long time ago that I auditioned for this one and I remember my husband was waiting in the car and I walked out and I said, if I don't get this role, this is the stupidest job in the world. But if I do, it's the greatest. And I remember saying very clearly to him, if I don't get this role, I will be shocked. And it was only supposed to be for one episode and that was it. But the character was just such a great character and so much fun. And they really let me do what I wanted to do. They really let me go off on a tangent. Sometimes they make you stick very strictly to the script. And other times they go, make it your own, do whatever you want. And so you'll take the line and you'll build on it. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger and more and more fun. And they just kept writing her in. But I never, ever got to work with Christopher Lloyd, who was Hacker, who was my love interest. Christopher Lloyd, to me, he was a huge part of my childhood because I used to watch Taxi and all those shows and I was like, oh my God, I love him so much. He's the best, you know, Back to the Future, all that. So last year I was at a Comic-Con and I was right beside Christopher Lloyd the whole time signing. And I'm like, oh my God, I have to talk to him. So finally we were in the green room and he was just sitting there doing his little texting. And I walked over to him and I said, I'm sorry, I just had to say hi. I wanted to introduce myself. I'm Linda Ballantyne. We've never met before, but we've worked an awful lot together. And he gave me one of his Christopher Lloyd looks, sort of like, what? And I said, I was actually wicked in Cyber Chase. And he gets up and he goes, wicked. 
And he just gives me this giant hug. He says, it's time we met indeed. And I was like, oh my God, I'm dying. I'm dying. So then we got to have a really good talk afterwards. And it was awesome. Then we both sat there going, I really hope it comes back for another season. It's such a great show. And sure enough, the next week, I think it was, they said, okay, it's back. And Wicked is on and off. So how do you get notified when you're supposed to be there? My agent calls me and says, okay, you're on. They want you for Wicked. And I'm like, woohoo! And I have a feeling that Christopher Lloyd's story is your favorite moment technically associated with this but do you have a favorite moment that Wicked in this show you got to voice the best part about playing a villain is that they never ever win they think that they are the greatest things on the planet and nothing can ever ever sway them and they think that they are going to win every time and then every episode they lose every single time they never win and it is so much fun going from that huge I own the world to what no you know and everything crumbles around you and I just loved it I love that show I love that character she is just so crazy and she loves herself so much she just can't get enough of herself which is the best now, I hate to get away from this wonderful high of evil love, but <laughs> we need to talk about some other villains, possibly, in Yang Yang Yo, where you played Ella, Mental, and Smoke. And Saranoia, the lie fairy. I think I pretty much played every female villain in that show, and that was fun, because I never knew what I was going to be playing when I would go in there. So I would walk in and they'd say, okay, Linda, today you're going to be the lie fairy. And I'm like, the lie fairy? And they go, what do you think she would sound like? And I'd be like, oh, well, the lie fairy would sound sort of like this. And every choice I made, they ate up and they loved and they let me do whatever I wanted to do. They let me change the lines. That show I loved pretty much as much as I loved Wicked as well. It was a dream to work on that show. And it was Disney, so it's even more fun. Around this same time, you were also involved in two other shows where you weren't villains. Will and Do It, yeah. As well as you were Tool Up in Toot and Puddle. Both of these were kind of similar where they were dealing with animals and they were kind of more lighthearted. What was that like to be in a more lighthearted, more animalistic, for lack of a better word, environment? There's definitely fun in that because when they say now you're flying, so you're really having fun flying and you're saying your lines as you're flying and you're picturing yourself soaring among the clouds and how would you talk, but you've got to yell down to someone, maybe they're way lower down and all that is just so much using your imagination and just so much fun playing, doing that kind of stuff. With Will and Do It, it was a funny one because I think it was the very first one that I ever had to sing in and I'm not a singer necessarily. I'll sing as a character, but I've never done it before, so I'd never had to put on a funny little voice and then do it as I was singing too. And when you do a show, you always have one phrase, this catch line that will start you off with your character so that it sets your vocal cords up. It sets the way you stand everything and that gets you ready for the rest of the performance. So for Sailor Moon, I can't even remember what my catchphrase was for that one, but it might have been, oh Darian, you're so romantic. And as soon as I did that, I knew that this is how I had to talk. And then I could just go into it. So with Will and Do It, the first thing I had to do was sing this song and it was this a room is one thing I'll never lack I carry mine right on my back and then I knew that this was the way she talked but I could not find that voice until I sung that song each time so I still to this day and that was years ago I still remember that so that's what that one taught me anyways and playing the animals are definitely fun one time I was the voice of sore feet in a Dr. Scholl's commercial which is ridiculous on its own but you would literally see two feet walking across a sidewalk and I was the voice of the left foot and of the right foot and I just had to say, ow, 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 ow.
wow, the entire time this thing was walking. And it was quite ridiculous, but you certainly get into it. And it's fun, fun letting your imagination go. And now you've been in so many roles. I'm going to just name a few that you had quite a few episodes in. Bakugan, Battle Brawlers, Doodle Bop, Rocking, Roadshow. Cat in the Hat knows a lot about that. And several others where you had like one or two or three episodes and you had some small roles. What is it like to be in these types of shows where you have one episode to make an impression? It's funny because I was so spoiled by Wicked and having one episode and them just continuing to write me into the scripts because they just love that character that I almost half expect that from these other shows that I do. It'll just be, this is a one-off character, but then they might bring it back. It happens a lot. If they like the character you do, they go, let's write her in another script. Let's just keep bringing her back. So I guess that I always have that hope in the back of my mind that I will. And it's so much better, of course, when you're in a lot of different episodes, because then you can really build the characters and the character can move from one thing and, and just progress throughout the series. And I was Magnolia in George of the Jungle. And that one was one of those ones where she just got to continually progress. Magnolia is the scientist in the show. And so she was the one that knew everything and she had all the answers, but she never really had all the answers. She was a bit of an idiot and she really never got it right. And then halfway through the series, they said, we're now starting to think that maybe Magnolia never actually did become a scientist. She just thinks she's a scientist. Maybe she's a little bit completely and utterly crazy. And yet she's so sure that she's going to win a Nobel Prize for science for sure the entire show. So as they did that and as it progressed, the character just got bigger and bigger and crazier and crazier. And again, they let me go off on a tangent so it became more and more fun and speaking about georgia the juggle because it's a perfect segue there's a lot of rich history that the original one came out in 1967 and then the movie came out in 1997 live action how much did that influence you when you were working on the show I used to watch it as a kid. That was one of my favorite shows. I loved that show. Although, the one that I watched as a kid didn't have Magnolia in it. So, I actually really wanted to be Ursula more than anything. Now, I am so glad I was Magnolia and not Ursula because I would have no vocal cords left whatsoever if I was Ursula. Because Ursula ended up being like this real gravelly type of thing. And that poor actress who did her voice was just so hoarse after doing that. And now Georgia the Jungle was in over 160 countries. How do you feel that you were a part of that and your voice was really spread out as Magnolia? I'm always amazed by it. I live in Toronto. I just go to work. I do my voice stuff. I love doing it and everything. And then I'll go to a Comic-Con. I went to a Comic-Con in Australia and you get there and there's thousands of people who are just crying when they meet you. Like a lot of fans have this real visceral reaction when they meet me because they're getting to meet their childhood. They always say, you don't understand. You are my child. Childhood, and I'm like, you don't understand, you are my adulthood. <laughs> you know, and like we have a nice little hug. It's very overwhelming. It's amazing that thought of going, wow, people know who I am. My family is mostly Scottish. And even in Scotland, they all know Sailor Moon there. And so now I'm the talk of the family in Scotland. And as a voice actress and really getting this fame and really getting this exposure, how do you feel that, that affects you with? auditioning and really getting out there. I think that everybody that does voice acting, we all sort of come from the same place and anybody who directs us or produces, they're all pretty used to us as actors. We're nothing special to them, that's for sure. Well, it's not we're nothing special, I suppose, but they want to get the job done and they're not looking at us like, oh, wow, you did this or you did that. Every now and then I'll go in. Now that the ages are sort of changing and everybody who watched Sailor Moon as a kid, they're all in their late 20s and 30s. And so now they'll be producing me or directing directing me in something and every now and then someone will say I was a really big Sailor Moon fan I'm like yay keep hiring me please 
And now the final rule that I want to talk about, which we're going to backtrack a little bit, is from the wonderful world of Centopia, as you were Queen Myla in Mia and Me, which has a very interesting animation style. I love that show so much, and I'm so angry about it as well, because that show did so well in Europe. It went nuts, and they brought it to the States. It went nuts in Canada. Everybody loved it. It won all kinds of awards. And then... Then they decided that the next season they were going to do is going to be non-union. And everything that I did as that character, they gave to somebody else who is not a union actor. So now the new episodes aren't me. And it's really, really frustrating because as an actor, you bring something to the table. You create a character, essentially, and you put a voice to it. And then they just farm it out to wherever it's cheaper. It's been really frustrating because I love that show. It's so beautiful and I'm so proud of it. And so for them to just take that away and go, okay, it's gone non-union now, is what I say. And we got to talk about that because I don't know what union is and probably a lot of listeners don't understand union versus non-union. So as an actor, we would do anything for free because I love acting. I love what I do. And the union was developed basically to put us all under an umbrella and say, we're going to take care of you. We're going to make sure that you get paid the way you should be paid because otherwise you would do it for free because you'd sell yourself under the table. And what you do has worth. So we are going to say that there's going to be set prices that they have to pay when you do something. And you know when you go in to do an animated show, you are going to get this much money per episode. And if it's this type of character, if you've got under six lines, then you're going to get a little less. But if you've got over six lines, we're going to give you this much. And they look after you and they make sure that there's also residuals. So an animated show, if it plays for four years, after that they have to pay you some more money. The union makes sure that it does get paid and everything's good. So non-union, they don't have any rules like that. They can just say, I'll do it for 50 bucks. If you want me to do that, I'll do it. No problem. Sometimes they get paid more, but a lot of times they don't. And the other thing about the union is, you know that the people that are part of it are all very good. You have to work to get into the union. First of all, you audition. They say, we want you, but you're not part of the union. So you're going to have to pay for this permit. So you pay for that. And once you get something like six or seven permits, then you're part of the union. It's hard to get into the union and you have to be talented. So I'm proud of the union that we have. So it's really hard when a show will just throw it all up in the air and go, we've decided we're going to go non-union now. It's really frustrating and it's all because of money and that's all there is to it. It's not because they think they're going to be getting better talent. They know that the talent is not going to be nearly as good, but it's about money. They want to make it cheaper. And it's not like we cost a lot, especially in Canada. It's not like it's cost them a fortune to use us, but they're just going as cheap as they possibly can. Very frustrating. And now to talk a little bit about this, and it might be a sore spot, but you said you love this character. What exactly did you love about Queen Myla? I loved her gentleness and yet the strength that she held within and how regal she was, but also she's still a mother. So she was able to look at her kids and laugh and have fun with them. But then she also had to stop and remember that she was the queen and that she had to sort of hold herself above. I love the gentleness of her and I love anything that goes almost contradictory to who I am. I'm not necessarily a gentle character. I'm pretty loud all the time. I'm one of those moms. It's like, what are you doing? No, you can't do that. I'm always yelling around and stuff. Stuff like that. So this character was just a joy to play. I should be more like her in real life. And in recording this, Nickelodeon was behind this. What is it like to work with Nickelodeon? It's kind of the same as all the other ones that we work for, for Chorus and for Disney and stuff like that. You're still going into the same recording studios generally. And you see a lot of the same people. The same people will be directing you. I don't really know a difference between one to another, to be brutally honest with you. And now I kind of want to shift into more general questions. 
one of the things that a lot of people want to know is what advice do you have to offer for people who want to get involved in voice acting, whether it's cartoons or whether it's anime or even commercial work in voice acting? I would say get in front of a microphone as often as you can. It's a lot easier nowadays because of computers, so you can just be in front of a microphone on your computer, recording yourself, listening. But do as many different voices and listen to what's out there already. Watch the shows that are out there already so you understand the style of acting because it changes all the time. Another thing that's really great to do is to go onto a site called voicebank.net. That has all of the demos of all the actors out there, any union ones. And you could listen to my voice demo if you wanted to, and it's on there. And you'll get an idea of what the different voices are and stuff that everybody else does. And you might find somebody who you think you sound a lot like, and you go, okay, well, I could do that kind of stuff. Oh, what kind of voices do they have? And you get a really good idea of what's out there. And you've been voice acting for almost 20 years at this point. How do you feel that the industry has changed with the way things are recorded and what type of shows are being brought over into Canada, the U.S.? Well, technology alone has changed things. When I first started out, it was reel to reel. They were taping onto a reel and instead of doing it digitally, and if they had to cut out something, they literally had to take the tape, cut it in half, cut out the bit that they didn't want and tape it back together. Like it was literally that difficult. So they didn't want you doing a lot of takes and something. They wanted you just to get it right and that's all there is to it. Even from when I did Sailor Moon, we used to do it on what was called the Rhythmo Band. was handwritten onto movie film. They would shine it up on the wall with the picture underneath and it would literally scroll by and when a word hit the line, that's when you had to say it. Now it's all digital. They've got it on a computer screen in front of you and when the word is green, it goes from green to yellow. Once it turns yellow, you read that word and you just sit there and follow along with a bouncing ball. It's so easy. And final question, is there anything you would like to promote? Facebook, Twitter, any shows coming out, any roles? Top Wing is a show that I'm in right now. Zuzu Pets, Little People, I'm in all those shows right now. George of the Jungle is now online. And if you want to get in touch with me at all, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at L.A. Ballantyne. That's B-A-L-L-A-N-T-Y-N-E. And so definitely look me up. And if you have any questions, I'll happily answer them on there. As always, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the podcast, and we can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitch Radio, and anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. And while you wait for next week's episode of the podcast, you can definitely check us out at popanimecomics.com for articles relating to anime, comics, and pop culture, as well as you can give us a follow on the bird, that is Twitter, at popanimecomics. You can give us a like on Facebook, which is popanimecomics. And if you'd like to support this podcast, you can click the affiliate link down below, brings you right to Coinbase. When you buy $100 worth of Bitcoin and you sign up using the link down below, you get $10 and I get $10. And that helps to keep this podcast up and running and free. And until next week's episode, everybody have a wonderful week.